Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we are joined by a special guest from Australia. We have Jean Tunney, who is an adjunct fellow at the Center for Independent Studies and also the director of ADAPT Economics, a consultancy in Brisbane. Welcome to the podcast, Jean. Hello, Oliver. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you with us because we want to talk about a paper you just published last week with the Center for Independent Studies called Debunking Degrowth. Now, I thought we should start this conversation by just admitting freely that we are both economists. So degrowth is something that doesn't come naturally to us usually because mm-hmm. normal economic theory, correct me if I'm wrong, is all about trying to find better ways of combining factors to do more with less or to, to do more with the same, to find different combinations, to create growth, to really find out what works and make an economy grow. And now suddenly... We've got a bunch of scholars turning this on its head, telling us to actually try to not create so much wealth and not create so much prosperity, but really put the reverse gear in and go in the other direction. Is that a fair summary of what this movement is about? Yes. I mean, they certainly want us to go in the other direction. I mean, the to steel man their argument, Oliver, I think how I'd describe it is that they think we're breaching these planetary constraints so they think that we're at a level of consumption whereby we are essentially you know we're sacrificing the well-being of of our children or grandchildren so they're concerned that we're 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 going to destroy the planet some of it this uh the degrowth literature is it's apocalyptic it's i mean i think it's catastrophizing but you know they they're worried about climate change. They're worried about ecological breakdown. They're worried about resources being exhausted. So, yeah, look, I, I largely agree with you. But to to steel man their argument, they think there's evidence to support the view that we're consuming too much if we want to uh, have you know sustainable living standards for future generations. Right. And in your paper, you then produce or reproduce their claims and you're debunking them one after the other and you've got five claims in your paper. So I thought what we might do is we might just go through the list and try to figure out what this movement wants and your response to it. So the first unproven claim you talk about in your paper is one that you already alluded to. We need to degrow to stop climate change. Why do they say that and why do you think this is wrong? Oh, well, essentially they they think that we're on these tipping points. It appears that you know the climate, the or well, the the planet is warming. I mean, there's scientific uh, support for uh, for CO two uh, warming the atmosphere to an extent. So uh, there's that's un that's difficult to contest. But they claim that what they believe these real uh, these tipping points sort of the scenarios the whereby. I mean, the permafrost melts, there's all this methane release. So, you know, we have the, what is it, one of those ocean currents that shuts down. And I mean, all sorts of apocalyptic scenarios. And I mean, just looking at it, I mean, I think that the evidence for that is, uh, I mean, a lot of it comes out of computer modeling. There are all these computer simulations whereby if you look at what they're doing, a lot of the, the conclusions the uh, apocalyptic conclusions are essentially assumed or built into the model. So, I mean, my feeling is that the evidence isn't strong enough to justify that apocalyptic thinking. Sure, there's some 
warming going on, but there are policy measures being introduced to try to address that. Or, I mean, none of the the credible modelling on climate change mitigation has degrowth in it. I mean, we can still grow. We'll still be uh, wealthier in per capita terms. Uh, maybe the growth rates less or more if we respond to climate change. I mean, now we've got people saying that if we don't address climate change, we'll have lower growth. So look, I think they're making big claims about how we're going to uh, you know, have this unsustainable or runaway global warming if we don't do something radical and massively cut back our consumption. Uh, so that's essentially their argument. And I, I just don't think the evidence supports that. But of course, beyond that, because we've already decoupled economic growth to a degree from emissions, so yeah. just because you're growing doesn't mean you're necessarily growing your emissions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I think they're ignoring a lot of the yeah the the technological change. They're they're ignoring our capacity for innovation. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So I guess not to not to necessarily defend them, but they do address that decoupling argument, and they do acknowledge that that uh, you know the emissions intensity of GDP is declining. But in their view, I mean, we're still uh, increasing uh, CO2 emissions. Oh, sorry, we're still, you know, the, the CO2 in the atmosphere is still growing. So they're a bit uh, sceptical of that whole decoupling argument. There's another aspect to the whole climate change debate, and that's adaptation, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're comparing countries like the Netherlands and Bangladesh, Bangladesh is subject to flooding, but so is the Netherlands because they are mainly under normal sea levels. And yet the Dutch built dikes and all sorts of infrastructure to deal with that because they could afford it. And in Bangladesh, um, they're still waiting for that to happen. So actually, isn't actually economic growth the thing that saved the Netherlands from flooding? Yeah, yeah. Look, that's a that's a good point. I mean, uh, you, you wouldn't want to degrow and stop uh, emerging economies from getting wealthier because that will decrease their capacity to to actually adapt to deal with it. I absolutely agree with you there. And look, that's one of the things that the the degrowth movement misses, in my view. I mean, there's all of this, you know, it's a lot of the standard sort of criticism of of capitalism and and economists that you get um, from uh, from people on the left. And yeah, I mean, it ignores the fact that I mean, since Countries such as China and India embraced the market, right? China in the 80s under Deng Xiaoping, and then we had the the end of the license raj in, in India. I mean, they've they've had you know much better growth than previously, and we've had over a billion people lifted out of poverty. So yeah, absolutely agree with you there, Oliver. Okay, then let's move on to your second unproven claim. We need to degrow to stop resource depletion, environmental degradation, and biodiversity loss. That leads us straight into the debate around Julian Simon, or if we want to go back a little bit further, Thomas Malthus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think history shows that, I mean, we are able to uh, address these issues. Uh, and a lot of the concerns are, are, can, are best addressed through the market, uh, through clear uh, delineation of property rights. A lot of the problems we have in Brazil, for example, there was a recent Economist article I mentioned in the in the paper, which is essentially saying a lot of the problem with the rainforest, the structure of the rainforest, is lawlessness. It's bad enforcement, right? And look, you know, there are efforts all around the world to tragedy to of the commons. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's really just, yeah, they just seem to ignore that. Uh, you know what economists know about uh, you know 
people who who own a resource are going to cons- you know protect it and uh, conserve it uh, so yeah absolutely and and look i mean look you have to acknowledge that there there has been a loss of biodiversity over over decades and i mean uh but i think we're starting to address that we're starting to arrest that uh decline and uh, certainly then so i've got a there's some evidence there about the decline in uh biomass globally or or number of uh, uh animals and uh, you know that's that's been arrested that decline which which is good so look i think you know it's a lot of just negativity and isn't capitalism awful whereas really i mean we can address these issues there within uh, our ability to to control and look just look what we're doing in australia i mean we're a wealthy country so we and and this goes to your point before oliver that the wealthier countries are going to be uh, better able to address these issues i mean we've got things like biodiversity offsets uh, anytime you want to do a development that impacts the environment you have to prove about how you manage or manage those impacts and we've even stopped we stopped a dam in southeast queensland even though we need the water right it's good we've got a hugely growing population and we stopped a dam because we were concerned about a lungfish so um yeah i mean we are trying to address these issues and i think yeah that that argument really doesn't doesn't hold up and the other point too you as you know a dam over lungfish yep traveston dam oh, that sounds that was like, the reason that sounds like an episode straight out of utopia well it happened there was peter garrett who was environment minister yeah. here so um yeah it was a huge issue because we had a, a water crisis in the 2000s here in uh, southeast queensland and so we built a desalination plant which is hugely expensive we built a recycled water plant and then we were looking at a dam north of brisbane in uh the mary valley uh, the traveston dam and it got right to the point where the federal government had it got to the federal approvals uh, process and it was blocked by the environment minister peter garrett former uh you know lead singer of midnight oil yes yes very famous man he was the environment are burning. minister yep. blocked it because the lungfish was threatened so yeah apparently they, there was no way of of uh looking after the lungfish if you built the the dam so yeah that's that's just an example of uh how we do care about the environment in this country it's not as if we're sacrificing the environment for growth the other idea of course in all of this resource depletion seems to be one of these ideas that you simply cannot ever refute it keeps coming back um going back to morpheus of course as the classic mm. starting point but William Stanley Jevons in the 1860s actually predicted the world would run out of coal. But it's, it's this general tendency to do linear thinking where everything is always continuing on a certain path. I mean, there was a letter writer, I believe, in the London Times in the early 20th century predicting that London at some stage would be under six feet of horse manure from all the horses in the city. It's, it's this tendency to always think we're just continuing on the same path and it will never change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh... So, and the thing with re- scarcity of, of resources, I mean, we know that as they if they do as they do become scarcer, the price is going to increase, and that's going to encourage uh, conservation, or it's going to encourage people to switch to uh, to alternatives. So, uh, and and you mentioned you alluded to the uh, Julian Simon Paul Ehrlich bet, yes. which uh, Ehrlich ended up losing because he thought we were in the seventies. He they thought we were on a path to 
you know, massive resource scarcity. And Perhaps he thought all these. Just for the benefit of listeners who may not be aware of that, um, can you tell us briefly what this bet was about? Uh, it was about prices of commodities. They selected uh, uh, maybe a couple of dozen commodities, major commodities, and Ehrlich was betting that that increase in price over the, the 80s by a certain percentage. Because he claimed we would run out. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. there was all of that modeling in the, uh, well, Ehrlich was infamous for that population bomb book in the late 60s, which forecast that, you know, we'd, um, we'd you know, even with like, what was it? Eight, at 8 billion people, which w where we are now, we'd end up with, uh, you know, massive famines and um, there'd be, you know, chaos and all of this. And, yeah, and then we got uh, the Club was, of Rome and the limits of growth yeah. and all of that. Yes. Yeah, Forrester and Meadows, and and there was all of this uh, apocalyptic thinking. You know, well, doomsday was at hand. So I think what I found interesting looking at this whole degrowth literature is a lot of the a lot of the concerns or a lot of their arguments could could be questioned or rebutted if you go back to just what sensible people like Robert Solo and um and the treasury here in australia what they were saying in response to the club of rome right mm -hmm. um yeah so uh sorry oliver i forgot what we were oh no, what, no that's we, fine and what, by where, the way we, we, we made made a very similar point in one of our publications here a few years ago we had a um, little booklet published under the title the case for economic growth and we were talking about environmental kutznets curves where yeah First of all, um, when the economy grows, yep, there is an impact on the environment and it might be negative. But once you get past a certain point, people will demand action and clean it all up. And actually, it gets yeah, better yeah. over time. Yeah, and that's one of the points that I made in the, in the paper. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Your third point, your p third unproven claim is perhaps even more interesting. We are rich enough already. Well, that would be harder to make that claim in New Zealand because we're 25% behind Australia. <laughs> but what is the <laughs> thinking behind that? Oh, well, they make the argument that if you look at happiness, you know, correlations of happiness and GDP per capita beyond a certain level, it starts to flatten out. And so the argument is that countries such as Australia and, I mean, I mean maybe, New maybe New Zealand doesn't qualify yet, but we're wealthy we've got a way to go <laughs> and it's all about you know it's it's an issue of inequality so there's it's this sort of argument that oh look the west is rich enough already it's if you're concerned about the rest of the world then it's you should redistribute that income and you know the people in the west we're the ones who are causing we've caused all the problems with climate change etc it's all our fault um you know imperialism and all of that Uh, so, yeah, and so that we should redistribute our income and wealth. The problem is that that's only going to go so far, right? It's not going to solve the problem, and it's not good for, uh, you know, incentives, right? It's not good for, it's not sustainable. So, uh, yeah, it's just a really bad argument, I think. And and it also, I mean, when you look at it, this this is going to require authoritarian measures to introduce because at the moment here in Australia, we've got a cost of living crisis, right? So you're not going to be able to tell people. And we've got, you know, shortage of housing. You're not going to be able to tell people you're rich enough already because a lot of people are going to go, no, we're not. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. Uh, and you'd have to engage in really authoritarian measures to introduce any degrowth, uh, to, to bring about degrowth. So, yeah, I, I think it's a really bad argument of the degrowth people. Exactly right. I, I think there is another point, actually, that we should consider. Sometimes it's not so much the absolute wealth that you hold, 
it's the direction of travel. So I've actually seen some really happy people in countries that are not that um, rich yet, but they're traveling in the right direction. Whereas you can be in a richer country that's kind of stagnating, declining, and feel really miserable about it. So actually people want to have hope. They want to see that the future is better. And then it almost doesn't matter from which starting point you come. It is the direction of travel that actually determines how happy you are. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the the example of a country that was rich and started declining, everyone was miserable, is probably Britain in the 1970s. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. Yeah. Unproven claim number four. We need to degrow to reduce inequality. What about that? Well, yep. I mean, I guess this is, this is related to that previous point. So... And, and this is part of their whole critique of capitalism, that capitalism makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. And look, I, I think that's a, a really silly uh, argument and there's not a lot of evidence for that. And and if you look at just the huge gains we've had in uh, living standards in emerging countries, emerging economies over the last 30 years uh, since we've opened up to the market, I mean, it's just extraordinary, over a billion people taken out of out of poverty. And, uh, I mean, you know, back in, there's a, there are a few stats that I use or that the World Bank's produced, which shows that I think around 1990, it might have been 70% of the world was living on $6 US a day or something like that. So not the, the direst poverty of $2 a day, but, and now that's under 50%, right? So... And and if you look at the numbers living on you know, two dollars a day, then you have you know a big decline there too. So we've got huge gains. So that in relative terms, the world is becoming more equal. But we are seeing in some countries that you know there is an increase in inequality, particularly in the United States. Um, but I think you don't want to then conclude that oh the market system's terrible, isn't? Uh, because uh, look, I mean. That's associated with uh, you know new technology. I mean, we've gone through a, a period of of huge uh, technological disruption, and I mean, America America's the leader in that, and so therefore, you know, the people who are responsible for that are doing doing very well. And uh, look, you probably you're better off having a, a more productive, a wealthier economy, and you know, having the the pie bigger, and then yeah, sure, you can then have a debate about the 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 shares of that pie, but you want to have the the biggest pie possible, I'd say. Because in the end, uh, what capitalism and what economic growth does, it actually shares the wealth with more people. It's a democratization of luxury, if you like. Um, I remember yeah. actually speaking at an event um, quite a few years ago under the headline, people with flat screen TVs should stop whinging about capitalism. <laughs> One of the arguments I made was actually, if you teleported someone who was really, really rich a few hundred years ago, say you take the Sun King, Louis XIV, and you kind of get Louis XIV and visit 21st century Australia or New Zealand, what would Louis XIV be really impressed about? Well, that you could switch on the light with a, with a switch, or that you could um, read your newspaper from a foreign country on your phone, or that you could just call someone in a distant city. But I think what he would really be surprised about was that this was available not just to his modern-day equivalent, but to everybody. And so we have actually completely democratized wealth and prosperity to a degree that we had never seen it before in the history of humankind. 
Oh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, indoor plumbing is one of the, yes. the great innovations and uh, you know, better sanitation. Yeah. I mean, the world today is yeah, clearly yeah, much better, even, uh, you know, even if you're a king in the 17th or 18th centuries. I mean, yes, you'd much rather live today, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're not a king. <laughs> so, no, yeah. Um, yeah. Which then leads us to the culmination of all these unproven claims. Number five we need to degrow to avoid economic and social collapse. So listening to you, it seems obvious it is the opposite. If we want to avoid social and economic collapse, we need to grow. Yeah, well, this is part of that whole um, uh, apocalyptic or catastrophic line of thinking. And, you know, th there was that study a few years ago by, uh, uh, she was a consultant, and she wrote this, oh, I should have, Uh, I've got it in, I've got the reference in the in the report, but she tried she reproduced the the meadows and analysis or the the limits to growth yep. analysis from the 1970s. And she's saying, oh, if you look at the uh, the the data, we're on track for you know <laughs> societal economic and societal collapse, which is what the limits to growth model was predicting. So she had an update to limits of growth. Harrington is a her surname and uh it's part of this you know catastrophizing when you look at these models i mean and this is a point that solo made back in the 70s when he just tore apart the the whole limits to growth analysis in this great uh challenge article he wrote is the end is the end of the world at hand that i referenced in the paper and uh i mean they just build in the fact that we're going to hit some point of no return and then everything's just going to collapse so there's a in their simulations they have a, eventually population industrial output reach some peak and then just collapse but it's it's just built into the model they've programmed it into it and you can't say that because we're or oh, maybe some variables are tracking uh with what the model forecasts you can't then conclude oh yeah well then we're going to hit this peak and then we're going to suddenly collapse because There's no evidence that that's going to happen. And any person who does forecasting knows that these tipping points, these turning points are the most difficult things to actually forecast. So, yeah, it's just, uh, again, it's just catastrophizing. Absolutely. So in conclusion, then, you have saved conventional economics. You have actually demonstrated that what economists have been telling us all along is basically correct, that actually economic growth is a positive And that by finding better ways of combining economic factors of production, we are improving prosperity. We are making societies richer, and that's a good thing. Look, yeah, largely agree with that, Oliver. I mean, what I would say is that just as we degrowth, like targeting negative growth, would be silly. I'm not when I'm not necessarily advocating that we target a specific rate of economic growth because ultimately that's going to be the product of of uh, the market of just people what making decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I don't want to be, I'm not saying that, look, unfettered capitalism is what we want. I mean, we need some regulations. We, you know, there are some market failures we may need to address. But what I'm saying is that, you know, this whole degrowth thing is is rather silly. And and there's no evidence to suggest that uh, we can't continue to grow. And, and really, I mean, you know, growth is a solution to a lot of problems, so particularly if you've got a shortage of housing, uh, Uh, but, you know, if uh, we want to lift uh, living standards in emerging economies where they're still you know, much lower than than here in Australia and uh, and New Zealand. You know, of course, for the last few years, we've had a movement um, trying to make the case that actually it's not about growth. It's not about conventional economic measures. It should be something 
bit fuzzier, something like a well-being budget. That's what mm. we pioneered here in New Zealand. And I think your um, Minister of Finance or whatever he's called in Australia, Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has bought uh, completely into that narrative. And you're now also onto well-being budgets. But that's not really compatible with, then with a, a growth mind or growth outlook, focus. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a separate thing. I mean, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with looking at a broader range of indicators than uh, than GDP per capita. But yeah, you, you just don't... I mean, look, a lot of that... Well, to me, it always sounded as if they were trying to find an excuse for not having to deliver GDP per capita increases. And so they're looking for something fuzzier and call it well-being. Oh, yeah. yeah, quite possibly. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's another thing that the treasurer can launch and, you know, makes them look like they care about uh, different concerns of the community. So look, I, yeah, I, I think it's a bit... A bit, you know, a bit of a waste of time. The whole well-being budget, because yeah, a bit of a distraction. Um, but yeah, I, I take your point. Maybe that is what they're trying to do. That it's a, it's a cover for not actually achieving a, a decent rate of economic growth. Well, that could be a topic for your next paper. And if you're looking for materials, you'll find them all in New Zealand. Very good. Okay, <laughs> sounds good, Oliver. But for now, can I just thank you for um, sharing your thoughts with us on the podcast, and uh, just for all our listeners. Gene's paper is called Debunking Degrowth. You can find it on the Center for Independent Studies website in Australia. So that's cis.org.au. But for now, thank you, Gene, for being our guest and good luck for your future papers. We look forward to seeing them. Excellent. Thanks, Oliver. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you.